Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. Life is complex. Every day most of us are just trying to make it through. We have less time, and the time we do have needs to matter. So why Jesus? Is a 2,000-year-old story even worth revisiting? It's a fair question that the faithful and skeptic alike should be allowed to ask. Why Jesus? Here is a man who claimed to hold the very secrets to life itself. A man who claimed to understand joy in its core form. In his time, Jesus constantly avoided opportunities to seize more power, and instead he gave his life for his belief in a different kind of power. He spelled out this mission, his manifesto, in about 2,500 words in a teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, a radical new view regarding every area of life. What if he was right? What if it's all true? What would that mean for us, for humanity? the world. Why Jesus? What if we could reset everything and give ourselves a minute to ask the question, why Jesus? Why study his story? Because if it's true, it changes everything. And that alone might be worth asking the question, why Jesus? Good morning, everybody. Um, like Kenner said, my name is Caleb, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to share with you today and fill in for Aaron while he's with uh, his family in Georgia. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, continuing the study on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, if you want to flip there. While you're doing that, I'm curious, uh, how many of you guys grew up with siblings uh, in your house? A lot of you. Well, myself uh, as well. I was a youngest child, so obviously the favorite. Any other youngest? No? Okay. <laughs> yes. So um, I had an older brother, and he was about six years older than me. And I'm a pretty skinny guy, and when I was younger, I was really short too, so I was always the little one uh, of the family. And my brother would go on to play college football, so being six years older than me and a future college football player, he could pretty much pummel me anytime he wanted to. Um, so being brothers, we still love to get after each other and fight and you know, wrestle and all those things, but I knew that I had to pick my spots very, very carefully, uh, just given how much bigger he was. But I had the ultimate protection from my dad. So he would kind of watch out for me. And if we were getting into it too much, um, I knew he had my back. So I was careful to know if my dad was around and then know I was safe to kind of jump on my brother's back, tackle him, try to get out, you know, pester him and, and be that annoying little brother. And right before he was about to crush me, my dad would yell something like, Casey, don't hurt your little brother. And I'd slip away and feel like, ah, yes, I came out on top again. Somehow, as if my dad saving me was me winning. Uh, but my brother didn't really like this very much. He kind of got frustrated because he felt like it just it wasn't fair that I had my dad on my side. And I'm the one who started it, but he was never allowed to finish it. 
And I'm glad he was never allowed to finish it because I survived and am here to talk with you today. <laughs> but, you know, even as adults, there's uh, kind of a couple of ideas that come from this idea he started it, and that's, that's not fair. Those are two things that we say all the time. And one of the ideas that comes from this is this idea that retaliation is justified. My decision to respond to someone out of anger or rage or hurt or just fear is justified because of what that person did to me. And as kids, we all shout, you know, he started it, thinking that's going to justify our response and we're not going to get in trouble. But it never works. We always still get in trouble. And as adults, we still use this justification for our retaliatory words or actions uh, toward others. If someone treats us poorly, it triggers a fire inside of us that when it comes out, it, it feels good in the moment. But then later on, we know that wasn't a godly response. Jesus teaches uh, and teaches us about this and also models how we can respond. And that's what we're going to study today. The second idea that comes from this is that sense of fairness. It's not fair. That's something we've all said from a young age. And I think it's something that we innately have in us, but it's also reinforced uh, as kids. My brother, for him, it wasn't fair that he couldn't pummel me when I was the one being the instigator. Uh, but we're also taught from a young age that we should divide things up equally and make sure everybody gets their fair turn and fair, kind of fair shake. And I see this with my kids. So I have two uh, young daughters, as some of you know, um, Savannah and Abra. And if I give Savannah a snack, I better be ready to have a snack for Abra too, or she's not going to be happy. Um, and same thing with toys. If Savannah has a toy, Abra's going to want to play with the exact same toy. Both have to have a turn, even if there's 50 others you know, off to the side. Um, and if I'm playing with one, or we're spinning and twirling in the kitchen, the other one's going to run up and want to do the exact same thing. And I kind of indulge that. Like, I try really hard not to be uh, partial toward one or the other. I don't want to show favoritism to my kids. I want them to learn to share and to take turns. And, and that's not a bad thing. We all need to learn that um, as kids. But one of the things it does is it reinforces this sense of fairness and this sense of we're entitled to a certain action or behavior based on our own just expectations and who we are. So we create this standard of fairness that carries with us through our adult lives as well, but it's really based on our own expectations of how we should be treated. And it's a standard of fairness that comes from this broken kingdom that we live in, and it distracts us from the, what fairness means in the kingdom of God. Broken kingdom fairness creates a belief that our merits and our actions and just who we are as good people uh, demands that we be treated to our own expectations. And when this doesn't happen, I know I get ticks. In the kingdom of God, Jesus completely redefined this sense of fairness, and he did it by redefining our perspective. If we believe in Jesus, we believe in a kingdom that we don't deserve to be in, but God brought us into it anyways. Who are we to believe we deserve anything when staring in the face of our own brokenness and sin? of God's perfection and his glory and how Jesus restored our relationship with the living God. That changes everything for us. And it must change our perspective toward our life and toward the way that people treat us and how we feel about that. That allows us to replace our resentment, our frustration with what people do to us, with grace and kindness and love, just as Jesus modeled for us.
That's what we're going to look at today as Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount about this very thing. So let's pray um, and ask God that he can speak to us today. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you. Uh, We're so grateful that your word is alive and it's true and it has meaning. And we are thankful that you speak through it. And we pray that we would read your words today and be open to your spirit. Be open to what you have to say to us today and how you're calling us to respond and to act and to be more and more uh, like you in your image, Lord. Um, We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's look again at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42, or it'll be up on the screen as well. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now this is one of the most commonly quoted phrases or sayings of Jesus. The idea of turning the other cheek has become synonymous with Christianity. But what we need to look at is what is the correct interpretation of this passage? What does it actually mean to turn the other cheek toward our enemies? And, importantly as well, what does it not mean? What is Jesus not saying here? So the first thing we need to understand when we try to unpack this is what is Jesus referencing when he says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. What's he talking about? Who said that? Well, it refers back to Deuteronomy and the Old Testament law. So we'll look at that um, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, which we'll put up here on the screen, verses 15 through 21. It says... One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So what we learn from this passage and from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 is our first point, and that is that we must let God be the judge. And that's where it starts. If we look back at this passage in Deuteronomy, this set of laws and guidance is specifically being given to the judges who were appointed by God over this society in Israel. And there's many principles that are being shared here. Uh, One is that you need to make sure that you have more than one witness to verify a crime. Uh, You should investigate thoroughly to make sure that witnesses are accurate in what they're saying. And make sure that the punishment fits the crime. If there is pity and no punishment, people will not respect the laws of society, and evil will run rampant. But conversely, if there's extreme punishment for minor offenses, that doesn't make sense either. And a lot of these principles do make sense, and they're all, a lot of them are part of our judicial system still today. But what we have to realize when we look at this is that this is instruction being given, again, specifically to judges appointed over Israel to bring order to that society. And what Jesus does so often in the Sermon on the Mount is he makes sure that he goes straight to the heart 
and how our heart attitude needs to respond. He's trying to help us to not misinterpret and help the people he was speaking to not misinterpret the Old Testament law and the heart of what God wants from us. Specifically, what Jesus, uh, the people that Jesus was talking to were facing a lot of uh, oppression and resentment at that time, or oppression, and, uh, and they had resentment in their heart. So if you know a little bit about that time, the Israelites were, uh, ha- were t- being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and the Romans basically had free reign over them. This created significant negative feelings of resentment and frustration in the hearts of the Israelites. And it's why we see so often in scripture that the Israelites were looking for a militaristic or political messiah to come and overthrow the Romans. They wanted to uh, restore their sense of fairness and and give the Romans what they deserve. But again, Jesus flips this completely on its head, which this takes us to our second point in what Jesus is saying here. Jesus wants you to give grace and love to all even those who deserve it the least. Let me say that again. Jesus wants you to give grace and love to all, even those who deserve it the least. That's tough to hear. As Christians, we love grace. We sing about it all the time, right? It's amazing, amazing grace. We love it when it's coming from God to us. We turn to God and we say, thank you, thank you for your amazing grace. Forgive me for my imperfection. I'm humbled, I'm honored to receive God's grace, and I hope we all feel that way. It's true. But that's what we focus on. And so often we don't reflect that toward others. We turn to others and say, what did you just say to me? Or I can't believe that person did that to me, as if we deserve something higher, something better. Why do we fail at this so much? If we are trying to be a reflection of God's character, why is that so difficult? Well, it goes back to those ideas we talked about earlier. We feel entitled to our sense of fairness, of how people should treat us. And so then we feel justified in our response and our retaliation toward others. But is that what Jesus said or modeled in his life? Of course not. And that's not what we see in scripture. So what does that look like? What does it look like to show grace toward our enemies? Well, I recently had uh, a pretty amazing opportunity to go to the World Series uh, with my dad. It was uh, down in Los Angeles, and a really cool opportunity. And I grew up a Red Sox fan, and it was between the Red Sox and the Dodgers. So I went down there knowing I'm going to be wearing my Red Sox jersey, going into the heart of Los Angeles among all these Dodger fans. And don't really know what to expect, but it's probably not going to be pleasant. I figured I was going to get harassed all night, and, but I also knew that I was going to be preaching here, and I knew that this was going to be the topic, so I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to go to this game. Everyone's going to harass me because I'm wearing the opposing team's colors, and then I'll just show Jesus' love and grace. I won't respond. I won't you know, hit back or anything, and then I'll have a great illustration for my sermon in a couple of weeks. Um, well, it didn't quite go that way, and so fortunately for me, the Dodger fans were actually extremely nice and kind, which shocked me. I expected to be harassed and made fun of, um, but they were encouraging and reached out, like went out of their way to say nice things to me. And I was there representing everything that they hated, and I was the embodiment of so much disappointment and heartache. They were about to lose their second World Series in a row, yet they were still kind to me. So I didn't get the uh, experience I thought I was going to get, but I did left feeling something I never thought I was going to get, which was respect for the Dodger fans. Um, 
And that's the kind of like radical, shocking behavior that Jesus is calling us to. It's something so contrary to the norm that it surprises people. Jesus knows that if we model radical grace toward others, it points back to God's character and his saving grace toward us. It shows such a contrast to what others expect that it can literally cause people to do a double take, to ask why. That doesn't always happen, but when it does, what an amazing opportunity to be able to share why, share God's love and God's grace toward us. So practically, as we think about this, does that mean we should just be passive, let people kind of walk all over us, turn the other cheek, and kind of never stand up for ourselves? Well, especially no, not when it's in the context of an abusive relationship. And that is something I want to address here, because some of the misconceptions about this passage is that Jesus says you should always be passive, never respond, never take any action for yourself. And that's not true. It is true that many people uh, might be persecuted for their faith, and we see many examples in the Bible of where people, um, you know, are trying to share their faith, are stepping out in their faith, and they are physically or verbally assaulted. But when we think about the context of abuse in our society, Jesus is not saying that we should just lay down and sit in that spot. jumped back to the top, so thanks a lot. (laughs) Um, So as we look at this, if we sit and passively allow a uh, spouse, a friend, a significant other, or a boss to abuse us continually and to let that go unchecked, that's not turning the other cheek, and I really want to emphasize that. Turning the other cheek is about our heart, and it's what Jesus emphasizes is that heart attitude. It means asking the Holy Spirit to forgive and show grace to all. But we must protect ourselves and protect those who can't protect themselves. So I can't emphasize this enough. Jesus is not calling us to remain in any kind of abusive relationship and allow that to continue as we turn the other cheek. We have to remember what this is about. It's about our heart attitude. So if that's a situation that you're in or you know somebody, please talk to a staff member here um, about how to get out of that situation. But also seek the Spirit. Seek for Him to work on your heart and release that anger, resentment, and desire for your own retaliation or revenge. So if Jesus is speaking to our heart attitude here, what does He want us to focus on? How do we have this heart attitude? Well, Jesus lived His entire life with a kingdom perspective. And he wants us to have that same perspective driving the attitudes of our heart. Throughout his life, Jesus always saw past the immediate moment and understood what was at stake beyond that. It was eternity with God that was at stake. Jesus' heart broke for those around him, and especially for the ones who treated him the worst. They just didn't understand the magnitude of their actions, and Jesus knew that. In Luke 23, 34, As Jesus was being executed, he said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. And then in 1 Peter 2.23, it says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus practiced his whole life what he preached in this sermon. Entrust God to be the judge. Leave behind your resentment and desire for retaliation. Show grace to all, regardless of their actions toward you. As we look on, Jesus gave us a few more examples of how our heart should respond to those 
who take advantage of us. And this is our, our third point. Jesus wants you to faithfully and generously serve regardless of the circumstances. Again, Jesus wants you to serve faithfully and generously regardless of the circumstances. He said in verse 40 to 42, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is teaching the principle of giving to others without resentment or expectation. And this is where the popular phrase you've probably heard before, go the extra mile, comes from. Uh, it's referencing back to the Roman soldiers of the time who had the authority to uh, demand a non-Roman to carry their supplies or their packs uh, one mile for them. And Jesus tells the people that if you're compelled into that service, that service for people that you despise, do it. Do it with kindness. Do it with love. And go above and beyond and go another mile. This would have been really hard for the people to hear at that time. These Romans had oppressed them, taken advantage of them. They took their money. They were not respectful to their religion, their values, or their society. And yet Jesus says, doesn't matter. Be kind. Go the extra mile. Just put, let go of your resentment and your anger and let God be the judge. So many of you might know, um, if you know me, you know I own a co or I co-own an eyewear business. And one of the things that I've noticed as I study business um, as my profession is that a lot of really great companies exist because they serve and treat their customers really well. And if I asked you, you all probably had great examples of the opposite of that, where they don't. Um, Comcast is always mine. Uh, drives me crazy. But you know, it's amazing when you get an experience of a company that serves really well and kind of goes above and beyond. And I was recently reflecting with my uh, business partner about what's allowed us to continue to do, um, to run our business and to be in business for about eight years now. And it really, it hasn't been like innovative product or amazing um, branding or cheapest prices. It's the emphasis we place on the customer's experience with our company. And we've always purposefully and intentionally created strategies that create these amazing experiences with one goal in mind. And that's to get customers to tell their friends about us. And that's been one of the most effective forms of advertising we've had because it, when you hear a recommendation from a friend, that immediately gives credibility and makes you want to kind of experience it yourself. It's so shockingly different than what other companies do that it has led to a lot of um, just that kind of word of mouth spread. And it's not some revolutionary concept that we came up with. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus is talking about right here. But he's talking about something far more important than just wowing customers to get more future customers. He's talking about shocking those around us, even our enemies, with the love and grace of God. But why? Why does Jesus call us to do this when it's so radically different and frustrating to have to show kindness toward people that are so unfair toward us? Well, again, Jesus had a kingdom perspective. By going beyond the requirement or the expectation, the Israelites could show a love and a generosity that was so contrary to the norm that it would be shocking to those who received it. And perhaps this would be the only glimpse of God's love and of his mercy that those Roman soldiers might ever see. And maybe for us, that coworker that constantly stabs us in the back or takes advantage of us, maybe this is the glimpse of God that they're going to see and his grace and his mercy. Jesus said earlier in this sermon in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, does Jesus guarantee that um, upon going that second mile, that Roman soldier is going to stop, he's going to repent, he's going to give glory to God and praise you for your amazing example of godliness that you just showed to him? No. <laughs> we don't get that guarantee of a response from others toward our action. And that's one of the challenges, is that when we show that kindness and that grace, we expect the person to respond, to be amazed and, and to be thankful, and it doesn't always happen. But that's not the ultimate goal. When we follow God, we can join the work of His Spirit and potentially play a role in the spiritual journey of others, and that's awesome, that's so cool, but we may not ever get to see the life change that happens in that person's life. And not everyone chooses to follow God. Our goal has to be glorifying God and giving everyone the opportunity to understand what God has done for them and to learn how to live more and more as a reflection of God's character. So how do we do this? How do we keep a kingdom perspective that drives our actions and our words and drives the attitude of our heart? I, I wish I could tell you that that was really easy and I have like a great four-step plan that make it easy and you never have to worry about it again, but that's just not true. It's a constant challenge, and I think most of the things around us kind of drive us toward this broken kingdom sense of fairness that causes so much of this resentment in our heart. And when I look around our culture, I see a lot of evil, I see a lot of things that take us away from God, but I think one of the most significant things that draws us from God is distractions around us. For me, it's my business and sports. I, I love both of those things. I could spend all my time reading about sports, watching, playing, thinking about how we could grow our business. Like it's fun, I'm passionate about it, and it's who God made me, so there's, it's not inherently bad or wrong. But I can allow those things to take such an uh, em emphasis in my life and so much of my time that I've pushed out any thought of God, any time for reading his word or reflecting on what he's sharing with me. And that's where I lose the kingdom perspective. Now, some of you, that doesn't resonate at all because you don't care at all about sports and maybe you don't like your job. Um, but there's other things, too. Maybe it's Netflix or maybe it's family, kids. Maybe it's social media pulls you away. Or politics. We just had an election and I hope everyone had a chance to vote and participate. Um, but sometimes we can put political positions on such a pedestal that we make that our priority and our focus and not God. Now again, none of these things are inherently bad. But when we spend so much time with these distractions that we remove any opportunity to consistently read God's word and spend time in prayer and reflecting on what God's teaching us, then I can guarantee that you'll lose that kingdom perspective and be filled with that resentment or anger or frustration when you're faced with somebody who treats you unfairly. Again, God's calling for our lives is to be led by His Spirit, to participate in His work, and to be made more fully into His image. And to do that, we have to engage with the Spirit on a regular basis to fill our hearts with that grace and not the resentment and retaliation. This heart attitude is so central to God's kingdom, but some of you might feel like you've never entered God's kingdom. You're hearing about this radical perspective that's so contrary, but where does that come from? Why is that a thing? Well, Jesus spoke about it to us in this Sermon on the Mount, but he also modeled it his entire life. He came because our relationship with God was broken. We have mess in our lives that have made mistakes, 
all the time that keep us from this relationship with a holy and perfect God. But Jesus came and lived a perfect life, modeling this love, this grace, holiness, respect, truth. But yet he was punished for our mess and struck down in the most unfair way and gruesomely beaten for my sins and for your sins. But he didn't retaliate, as we read earlier. And he rose from the grave and showed that power over death. Jesus has the ultimate victory over evil. He's the source of all of our wholeness and the true identity that we have in God. And there's no greater joy in life than discovering your fullness in relationship with God and feeling this heart attitude that puts the kingdom first. Words can't explain it, but you can taste and see that goodness of God. So as our musicians come forward, I just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes um, today. And if God is speaking to you, I invite you to be open to him. If he's calling you into his kingdom for the first time, answer him. Confess your brokenness. Confess your belief in Jesus. Ask him to restore your relationship with God. Ask him to strengthen you, to turn away from your brokenness, and for his spirit to fill your life. Commit your life to being molded and changed by God more and more into his image every day. God promises his spirit to guide us. Embrace it. Embrace his spirit. For those of you who are believers in God's kingdom, ask God how he wants you to respond today. How is he speaking to you? Do you find yourself angry and full of resentment when someone does something that's unfair to you? Are you able to respond in love and grace and brokenness for that person's soul? How is God revealing ways he wants you to remove distractions? What is it that pushes you away from time spent with the Spirit? Is he asking you to release your anger or frustration or resentment toward a specific person? To speak to that person with the kindness and grace and love that Jesus models for us? Let's take a moment together to just quietly reflect on what God is saying to you and think about how he might be asking you to respond. to you today and we just uh, are so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful that despite our brokenness and our mess that you sent Jesus to not only tell us how we can have a relationship with you and how we can live our lives but to model that for us and to restore our relationship with you Lord. We are so thankful for your love and your kindness that you showed for us Lord we ask we ask that you help us to be a reflection of your glory, a reflection of your grace and your kindness toward others, even when it's people who we are so frustrated with that we feel like do not deserve it. 
that you would allow us to speak with kindness, to have grace, to go above and beyond in serving all people, and then be your spirit at work within us, Lord. Help us to avoid the distractions that pull us away from you and to have regular time where we can engage with you and hear from you, Lord. We thank you again for the way you reach down into our lives and how you mold us and shape us and teach us. And we seek you, Lord. We pray that this in your name. Amen. Well, we're now going to have a time to uh, take communion together. And uh, it's a great opportunity to just remember the sacrifice. Uh, on Jesus' last night, he... Uh, ate and drank with his disciples before he died. That's a powerful symbol for us to remember his sacrifice. And he calls us now to take the bread and the juice and to think about and reflect on what he's done for us and what he's done in your life, to confess our sins and to be thankful for how God has brought us into his family. So we're going to sing a couple of songs in worship, and if you're a believer in Christ, I invite you as you're ready to uh, join me, and uh, the elements will be in the back and the foyer on the table and feel free to grab those and bring them back to your seat. And as we worship together, take them um, as you're ready. So um, again, we'll start worshiping. And whenever you're ready, feel free to head back and grab those. Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.